are in Romans chapter 5. And we have, uh, in the last uh, two or three weeks, we've covered, last, I guess, three weeks, we have looked at the first 11 verses of chapter 5. And today we're picking up in verse 12. And, uh, and it's really kind of beginning a whole new uh, section that's closely related to the previous section, as we'll see as we go on. Uh, but uh, I, uh, as I said, I tried to divide it, uh, divide, kind of divide the verses up so I could, uh, I wouldn't have a little to do one Sunday and too much to do the next Sunday. And uh, the result was uh, that I actually planned to do verses 12 through 15 today. 15 is actually the beginning of a another paragraph, but I was just I just needed to do that, I thought. But whether or not we actually get to verse 15 is another question. Uh, while I'm thinking about it, before we go on, let me just remind you of our Christmas party at the Tinnies uh, this Friday. Please, uh, if you can come, please join us. We'd love to have you there. It's always a good time to get to know people in, in a little different context, uh, a little more humiliating, a little different context. <laughs> Uh, than uh, than you do here in the classroom, so it's a great chance to get to know people. So please, if you can come, we'd love to have you join us, and uh, we'll have a good time together. Okay, uh, so last week we were looking at verses uh, six through eleven, and uh, so before we go on to verse twelve and the following verses, let's kind of go back and look at those verses and think about them as we usually do. Think about what are some of the things that we talked about last week that you remember that stick in your mind. That a person would not die or not possibly die for a good person or a righteous person. Okay. That God actually would not die for a sacrifice their life for a evil person. Okay. Okay. Jesus did that for us. That's exactly what he did. Uh, while we were still sinners. And so Paul puts a lot of emphasis on the issue of timing. What is the other alternative way of looking at that issue of the timing of Christ's death? We talked about that. Okay. Uh, Chronological or historical, okay? There is a very clear sense, and Scripture teaches that there's a very clear sense in which the historical time in which Christ died was very critical, very important, very significant that Christ died exactly when He died in time and history, okay? Uh, But that is not apparently what Paul has in mind here in this particular place. Rather, what he's speaking about here is uh, the timing of Christ's death in reference to us individually and personally, that is, while we were still sinners. What else did we learn? Was it, was it covered why it was the right time? Uh, were you here? No. Oh, okay. okay. I was going to say, you tell me, I don't remember what we talked about. You know, I have this outline of stuff that I think I'm going to say, and as you know, I don't always get there. Actually, I'm in good company. I'm going to show you today that Paul had the same problem, by the way. Uh, but uh, so sometimes I don't always remember whether I said what I intended to say or whether we covered what we intended to cover. Can anybody answer this question? 
Your question was? Okay, okay. Yes. Okay. Okay. Would you answer it for us? Sure. Well, we were still helpless. It's in that very same verse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Actually, if you, if you were to look back at the earlier phrase, while we were still helpless at the right time. Yeah. Yeah. So the point is, it's when we were, when we were helpless. That's when we needed help. We didn't need help after we got our act together. We didn't need help after we lift ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We needed help when we were helpless. And that's when Christ helped us, is while we were helpless at the right time. And tied in with that, you, you were talking about the reasons he was giving here to answer some of the earlier questions. And I couldn't help but think back to earlier chapters. Because this, he was talking about earlier chapters about escaping the wrath of God. Mm-hmm. And how are we going to do that? We're going to you know, do these great works. We're, we're in the right family, you know, we're in the right family, whatever. But he concludes all of that here that there is no escaping the wrath of God. We were enemies. We were still sinners. We were um, in a, a place where we couldn't do anything about it. Yeah. And he kind of just closed all those arguments off and said, look, it's at the right time, Christ did it, and you couldn't have done anything. Yeah, yeah, good, great. And what is this point? What is what is in talking about Christ dying for us when we were sinners, and how how much evidence that is of His love? What what is the point that He's trying to really stress? And it's actually the point that He's trying to stress all the way through chapter five. What is the what is the drum that Paul is beating in chapter five? If he would do it at this time, under these circumstances, then how much more would he do it now? Okay, okay. So the whole idea of chapter 5 is the absolute bedrock certainty of our eschatological hope. What do I mean when I say eschatological hope? The future hope is not based on, well, we'd really like it to happen, but it's a guaranteed. Okay. Okay, as far as the hope is concerned, it's it's not a I hope so type of hope, but it's I I know so type of hope, okay? But uh, actually and that's actually an answer to the question the way I asked it, but specifically what I'm looking for is what am I what am I referring to when I use the term eschatological? You you did, but you slid them. Okay, the future hope. Yes. Okay, so it's it's a hope for something that's off in the distant future, at the end, okay, uh, comes from the Greek word eschatos, okay, and has the idea uh, of the hope we have of what God is going to do for us in the end, okay, at the consummation of all things. And that's what Paul is focusing on. We're living in this life now and, and we have all the tribulations and all the circumstances that we deal with in this life. But what he's talking about is the certainty of what ultimately God is going to do for us, our eschatological hope. Okay, So it's a big word, but it's just a reference to the, the, the end time hope, if you will, the hope of what Christ will do, is going to do for us personally, every one of us individually at the consummation. Okay, So, uh, so that's what he's talking about. What else did we talk about last week? He kind of reaches a conclusion there in verse 11. Uh, in light of all these things, what is the what is the what is the effect on us? What do we do? 
Okay? We exult in God. So, that's actually kind of a theme that he's kind of been uh, developing uh, all the way through these first 11 ideas, 11 verses, excuse me, is the idea of, of exulting or glorying in certain things. And first there at the beginning of the chapter, he talks about us glorying in the hope that we have. Uh, and then he talks about us glorying in our tribulations. And, and the reason we glory in our tribulations, the reason we rejoice in our tribulations is because our tribulations just increase the level and the intensity of our hope. Okay? And now he comes and after he, t- he talks about how all that works and what Christ did and the certainty of this hope, and now he comes down and he says, and so we glory in God. And actually what he says there is, is he says, we, we exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So, so the reason we glory in God is because of what Christ has done to reconcile us. And that leads Paul now into the next things that he's going to say. You'll notice that verse 12 begins with the word, therefore. So what he is about to say, and, and this actually is a, is a whole section that goes from verse 12 all the way down to the end of the chapter, what he is about to say is to explain to us how this whole thing worked about Christ reconciling us to God uh, and to show how just exceedingly, overwhelmingly, abundantly, sufficient and powerful and effective is the death of Christ. Hence, again, the issue of the certainty of our hope. Our hope is certain because of this just overwhelming greatness of what Christ did at the cross. And that's the theme he's going to develop in these next verses. Let's read the verses that we're going to try to look at today. And, uh, and then we'll... Uh, and you all are in luck because my battery's working in my watch again today. So uh, that'll help. Uh, but let's read uh, the verses that we're going to try to look at today. And then we'll go back and, and tackle them. He says in verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin... And so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed, is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression, For if by the transgression of the one many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. Okay? We read that and we go, huh? Okay? This this passage is, uh, uh, is actually a very crucial, critical passage to understand in order to understand just basic Christian truth. What is it that we believe and why do we believe it? And this and, and Romans chapter 5, particularly these verses 12 through 21, deal with some very foundational issues. Uh, issues like the question of original sin and things like that. So it's a very critical passage to understand 
But as you'll notice, having just read it, it's also not necessarily easy to understand. Okay, there are some difficult questions that we're going to have to tackle. But because the passage is one, difficult to understand, and two, crucial to understand, I'm not going to try to hurry my way through it. So, so I'm just going to take my time, and if it takes us two weeks or three weeks or however long it takes us to get through this section of chapter 5, I want to do it. I don't want to belabor it to the point that we get bored, but I hope that as we, as we grapple with the principles and the truths that are set forth in this passage, that, that we'll really be quite excited, because I really am excited about these things. These are pretty uh, fantastic truths uh, to think about. Uh, one of the things that, um, one of the things I, I just, just give you some preliminary thoughts that will kind of give us a frame of reference as we move forward in the passage. Um, one of the things that's important to understand is you'll notice in verses 12 and 13 and 14 particularly, and even in verse 15 and 16, he talks a lot about sin and, and, and uh, our connection with Adam's sin and the transgression of Adam and the sin of all men. And, and so there's a lot of emphasis on sin in these first few verses, but that's really not his subject. His subject is not the subject of sin. He actually, what he wants to do and what he's going to try to do through this whole section of verses, what he wants to do is, as I've already suggested, demonstrate to us the incredible, superfluous, overwhelming, abundant grace of God that's provided to us in the death of Christ. That's what he wants to show us. To show us that, he wants to, he, 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 he sets out to make a comparison between Christ's one act of obedience in dying on the cross and Adam's one act of disobedience in eating of the fruit of the tree. He sets that comparison because it's by showing to us the power and the extent of what happened when Adam reached out and took that apple out of Eve's hand and ate it by showing us the power and the extent and the effect of that one act of Adam's and then setting that in contrast to the one act of Christ of dying on the cross, we come to understand how great is the one act of Christ. Okay? So he's really trying to draw a comparison. So the real issue with Paul, even though he talks a lot about sin and Adam's sin and our sin in these verses, the real issue with Paul that he's trying to hit on is not the subject of sin, but the subject of death. As death compares to the life that we receive from Christ. Okay? So keep that in mind. That's important. So it's really kind of interesting that this passage is one of the foundational Christian biblical passages for the Christian doctrine of original sin. So it's a very important passage for us on the subject of sin and sin isn't even the main subject of the passage. Just kind of an interesting thing to me. But uh, you'll see how all this is true as it unfolds. Uh, as I said, one of the things that Paul, the, the way that Paul tries to accomplish the thing that he wants to accomplish, which is to demonstrate the greatness of what Christ did for us on the cross, is to compare it with what Adam did. Okay, so you'll notice there's kind of a 
kind of an outline uh, of verses 12 through 21. And I'll just mention that to you now and you'll see it, I think, as we go through. In verses 12 through uh, 14, Paul just kind of brings up the subject of Adam and Christ. Okay, he just kind of introduces the subject of Adam and Christ. But beginning in verse 15 and down through verse 17, Paul contrasts Christ and Adam. And we'll talk about why he does that here in a bit. But he contrasts Paul, uh, uh, Adam and Christ. And then beginning in verse 18 and through 21, he compares Adam and Christ. Okay? So that's kind of an outline of the passage to kind of keep in mind. First, he introduces the whole subject of, of Adam and Christ. Then he contrasts them. And then he compares them. And that's where he's going. Yes. No, I did mean superfluous. Okay, that's definition I've never heard. Yeah, uh, and I'll explain why when I get to that part of the passage. Okay. All right. Uh, okay. In uh, trying to make sure I cover my preliminary basis first, uh, one other thing you'll want to notice as we go through the passage is that Paul talks about kind of two groups of people and eat, and they overlap. Okay. But there's two groups of people and both of these groups of people have a representative who kind of stands as their representative. Okay. And uh, the one group of people are all mankind and Adam stands as their representative. And we'll talk about that in detail as we go through it. The second group of people are those whom Christ represents. So there's a second group of people that Christ represents. And we'll talk about that group of people too. And they overlap, of course. Uh, so uh, uh, that's something else. Just keep your eyes open for as we begin. So you'll notice that in verse 12, his first word is what? Therefore. Therefore okay. So this just brings out the point that I've already made. That the things that Paul is saying tie in very closely to the things he's already said. He's already been talking about this, this eschatological hope, this hope of what Christ is going to do for us in the, in the end, at the, at, the, at the consummation of all things, uh, all the, the blessing of sharing in the glory of God and receiving the life of Christ, eternal life, all that whole package deal that we get in this eschatological hope that we have. And he's been talking about that and he's been talking about how we exult in that and we, as we go through tribulation, we grow in that hope. We grow in the certainty and the, the knowledge that that's what He's going to do for us. And as we come to understand more of that and how Christ secured that for us and reconciled us to Himself through His death, we exult in God uh, and, and we rejoice in God. And, and now He wants to explain to us more about how we know this hope is so great and how we know it is so certain. And to do so now, he launches into this next subject. So, so hence the word therefore. Then, then we get to the next two words. <laughs> is, it, is it two words? Uh, uh, yes, two words, just as. Okay. Uh, so we get to the next two words. So, so, you know, here we are three words into the verse. We're not moving very fast, right? Okay. And we have to think about what he's saying when he's saying just as. Let me let me get a marker here that I know works 
Oh, these work. We got these last week. So hopefully if the kids haven't worn them out, they still work. We're in business. Okay. Um, Paul uses a technique uh, and, and uh, uh, he uses a technique of comparing one thing to another. And so we have, uh, uh, we have two uh, things that are going on here. We have uh, something called a, uh, apodosis. And we have something called, a, a, uh, excuse me, I should do it. Uh, yeah, this way. Okay. Uh, pr- Protestus. Okay, we have a Protestus and an apodosis. Uh, okay. Uh, please don't say apodosis because that's why I want to pronounce this and that's not correct. It's an apodosis. Okay. So don't get me confused because I always pronounce them wrong. But it's, uh, it's Protestus and, and apodosis. Is anybody familiar with those terms? Okay, well, it might have something to do with syrup, but actually it has something to do with the English language or language in particular. And a, and a protosis is a, uh, you got to get your uh, eighth grade English out here, okay? A protosis is the subjunctive clause in a conditional sentence, okay? And the apodosis is the main clause in a conditional sentence 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 (laughs) if I say to you if you give me ten dollars I'll run to the grocery store for you what is the conditional clause what is the subjunctive clause pardon no if you give me ten dollars that's the conditional clause or the subjunctive clause okay The main clause is, I will run to the grocery store for you. Okay? So, if you do such and so, then I will do thus. Okay? So, it's kind of an if-then argument. Okay? Or sentence. Okay? Now, that's what Paul starts out to do here in in, uh, verse 12. He starts out and he gives us the protesis. He gives us the subjunctive clause. So he says in verse 12, just as. And he then he goes on to begin to give us the rest of the subjunctive clause, the rest of the conditional statement. Just as sin, uh, uh, just as, the, uh, excuse me, uh, therefore, just as through one man, sin entered into the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sin. So he starts out with his protesis and he says, just as death or sin entered into the world through one man. And then Paul does what I do. He gets completely off track. Well, actually, he's not off track because he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But he never finishes his sentence. He never gives us the apodosis to this sentence. All the way down through verse 12 and 13 and 14 and 15 and 16 and 17, we never get the apodosis. We never get the conclusion. Then we get to verse 18 and Paul goes, oh yeah, I forgot. And so he goes back and he starts the whole thing all over again. And this time in verses 18, 19, 20, and 21, he gives us the apodosis and the apodosis both. Okay? So, 
When you read verse 12, you're instantly, you're, uh, instinctively, you're looking for the conclusion, right? If then, then what? You know, and you're looking for that and you keep looking and you don't see it. Now, don't feel frustrated. You don't see it because it just ain't there. Okay? He doesn't give it. What happens is he gives us the prodigious and then he, it's kind of like he realizes, oh, they need to understand this about that. And then they need to understand this about that. And then they need to understand. And so he goes on explaining all the different things that are, that are behind the scenes here and he never gets to the apodosis. Okay? He never gets to the if then, then this. Okay? He never gets to the then this. All right. Uh, so then when it gets down to 18, we'll finally get it, but we'll get the whole thing restated for us. So you just got to kind of hang in there to get the conclusion. But that's why I wanted to stress to you at the outset that we have to keep in mind what Paul's goal is, where he's going, because he's going to he's going to chase some rabbit trails or what we might think of as rabbit trails. Again, of course, we know this is the Holy Spirit speaking to us. So these are not irrelevant rabbit trails. These are important things for us to understand. Hence, we have in this passage where Paul is not intending really to speak about sin at all, one of the most important passages about the doctrine of sin. Okay? The idea of original sin. Okay? So there are important things to understand, but you need to understand where Paul also, you need to kind of have a view of where Paul is going with his argument. So he starts out. And he says, just as, and what he's going to do, ultimately, finally, when we get down to 18, 19, 21, what he's going to do is he's going to draw a comparison between Adam and Christ in order to show us the absolute overwhelming greatness of what Christ did at the cross. That's what he's going to do. In order to do that, he has to portray for us the profound significance and power and impact of what Adam did when Adam disobeyed God and ate of the fruit of the tree. This is not just some kind of little incidental thing that Adam did. This was an incredibly profound thing that Adam did. And the way Paul describes it here in verse 12, he says... Just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So here's what Paul wants us to understand. When Adam sinned, He introduced sin into the whole world. Now, when Paul uses the word world here, I think it's pretty clear that he's not referring to the cosmos. In other words, he's not referring to the world in the sense of the creation, uh, all of creation, the world and the universe, because we know that there was already sin existent in the creation before the sin of Adam, right? How do we know that? Okay. Yes, because we have Lucifer, we have Satan. So Satan had obviously already sinned because he's the one who presents the, uh, the option or the opportunity to Adam. So we know that sin already existed in the cosmos. So when Paul says that sin entered the world... Uh, through one man, he's not saying that sin entered the cosmos through one man. 
He's saying sin entered the world of humanity. So I think you have to read that word world there uh, as a reference to all of humanity. So the thing that Paul is going, is going to argue here is that when Adam sinned, he didn't just do a really bad thing. And then subsequently after that, we all just kind of followed his example. That's an aspect of Pelagianism, okay, which was a uh, early 5th century heresy that the church had to deal with. Okay, It's the idea that Adam did this really bad thing or this kind of bad thing, and it was sin, and, and the rest of us, we just kind of follow his example, and we all just do the same thing. Okay, That's not what Scripture teaches. What Scripture teaches is that when Adam sinned, he introduced sin into the human race, into the entire human race. Okay? So, he says, he says, therefore, just as through one man, sin entered into the world, and then what? What happened? Okay, death. When he introduced sin, he introduced death. Why? How did that happen? Okay, he disobeyed God, and what did God said? If you do this, you will. If you do this, you will die. God had made it very clear that the wages of sin is death, to put it in Paul's terms in Romans. Right? He made it very clear that if you sin, you will die. And so Adam ate of the fruit of the tree and immediately collapsed to the ground. Right? Is that what happened? So, actually, Satan was right. Because Satan said, you're not going to die, right? Because he didn't die. Gave him a <laughs> okay, can you clarify? Yes, because at, that, at the moment, Adam did not die as he dropped to the ground. But at that moment, the decay started. Okay, so the physical decay started. The physical decay started at that moment. But what else happened at that moment? The death of separation from the separation from God is what death really means, of course. The idea of death is this idea of separation. Okay. So what really happened is at that moment when he ate of the fruit, that Adam was separated from God. But Adam was not just separated from God physically, which is illustrated in the whole thing with the fig leaves and the hiding in the garden and stuff. He was not just separated from God physically, but in his soul, in his very inner being, he was separated from God. Okay? So keep that in mind. So when Adam sinned, he introduced into his very being, not just his body, but into his very soul, he introduced sin. And it became attached to his soul. Okay? And when he did that, he introduced sin into the whole world. And with that sin came death. Okay. Now, remember, death is the issue here. Death is the theme. Death is the thing Paul is talking about because he's contrasting death that comes from Adam with the life that comes from Christ. So his real main issue, the main subject of Paul's discussion here is not uh, not Adam's sin, but rather the death that Adam introduced. So we'll keep that in mind as we go forward. But we have to understand, how did the death get here? 
But death got here by the sin. That's how it got introduced. And Adam, when he ate, he introduced into his being sin. Now, there's a, you know, there's all kinds of questions you can ask about that, about you know, the evil and where did evil come from and all that sort of stuff. Okay, and we don't have time to talk about all that. Uh, incidentally, I do have a paper that's now available on our website which I wrote on that subject, so you can go to our resources page and it's available there if you want to read about 50 or 60 pages on the question of the problem of evil. But So that's all there if you want to read about it. But we won't take time to go into all that today. Okay. But what we understand now is that death was introduced into the whole world. Now, how does that work? How is it that Adam, when he sinned, he introduced sin not only to his own self, but to all of humanity. Okay? Because that's clearly what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying that when Adam did this, he introduced sin not only into his own being, but into the world. Okay? And through that sin, then death came not just to Adam but to all of Adam's descendants, the entire human race. Right? Is that not what he's saying? Okay. How does that happen? Well, I'll play with this a little bit because I've been doing a lot of study on this in the last couple of weeks or so. Uh, the question of the nature of being. So we'll, we'll toy with this a little bit because I'm having fun with this right now. When did you begin? When did you personally begin? Conception. At conception. Okay, we, most of us believe that. I think the scripture is teaching. <laughs> okay, at conception. Okay. Now we know that's when your body began, right? But we know we're more than just a body, right? We're also a soul. Okay, he knew. Yeah, but that's not my question. <laughs> my question is, when did we begin? And we know our bodies began at conception, but when did your soul begin? You shouldn't hesitate on this for a second, folks. This is found if you're if you're pro-life, this is foundational at conception. Your soul began at conception. It didn't exist before conception. It doesn't come into being sometime down the road when you finally come out of the birth canal or whatever. You get your soul at conception. Where did you get your soul? From that. From that. Sarah? Okay, okay, we are okay, okay. Uh, good, good, good distinction there. We don't have a soul; we are a soul. Okay, uh, where did that come from? From our parents. From our parents. Your parents had sexual relations together, and you were conceived. And at the moment you were conceived, you had a soul that came from your parents' soul, just like your body came from your parents' body. And that's where they got their soul. And that's where their parents got their soul. And that's where their parents got their soul. And ultimately, it goes back to whom? Hmm? Adam. Adam. Well, well, yeah. 
to Adam and Eve. Yes, to Adam and Eve. And so what we need to understand, and this is crucial to the doctrine of original sin. Now, some people go a little further than this, which is fine. I don't particularly agree with it, but it's well within the pale of orthodoxy. But at least this basic thing we know about original sin, that sin is not only attached to our body, but it's attached to our soul. And it comes from our parents. So my kids constantly remind me of that. That if they're sinners, they got it from me. <laughs> you know, I don't have an argument. You know, it's true. Uh, but we'll deal with that in just a second. Okay. So, when Adam sinned, sin then became... I'll put it this way. This is probably not a good way to put it, but it'll help us think. Sin became attached or fixed to his soul like a parasite or a disease. And when he and Adam, or he, excuse me, he and Eve, then knew one another in a sexually intimate way and they conceived a child, that's where that soul came from. And that soul bore the disease or the infection of sin. And in that way, sin and the consequent death spread to all mankind. Because, he says, at the end of verse 12, what? Death spread to all men because all sinned. Because all sinned. Okay. Now, there are absolutely volumes of, of pages that are written on that last phrase okay, by commentators. And... and uh, Augustine did a thing, and when he translated uh, that last phrase of verse 12, he did something that kind of, kind of throws us for a little bit of a loop. Uh, but, but most commentators agree that the proper translation, nowadays most commentators agree, on all sides of various theological fences, agree, most commentators agree, that the proper way to translate that, translate that is the way it's translated in most of our modern translations and New American, and I think King James and NIV all translated essentially saying, because all sin. Okay. Now, what Augustine did when he translated, he translated a little different, and, and he had a reason for doing it, but, but most commentators today believe that he was, uh, he was grammatically wrong when he did so. Uh, but most, or what Augustine did there, uh, when he translated it, he translated it, the death spread to all men, because all sinned in Adam. Okay, that's how Augustine translated it. Now, the better translation is because all sin. Now, obviously there's a big difference there. Okay. The, the, the big difference in this verse is, in how you translate it, is did all people die because they sinned in Adam? Or did all people die because they sinned? because they themselves actually sinned. Okay. So, in other words, did I die because Adam ate of the fruit or did I die because I sinned? Okay. That's the question uh, that's being asked here. Now, the, the problem is there is, in, in, in the concept or the idea of we all sinned because we sinned or we all died because we sinned in Adam, there is 
there is a biblical foundation for that concept. It's just not what that verse says. Okay? And I'll show you that in just a minute, why we have some foundation for this idea. But, so, it's, it's just that it's not what the verse is saying. So, what's interesting here is that what Paul appears to be saying is that, that sin was passed on from generation to generation to every descendant of Adam so that all the world is infected with sin and hence everybody dies. Okay? So, so that is, that's true. But the interesting thing is, as you read through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, one thing is clear. That every person who is punished for their sin is punished for their sin, right? In other words, at no point in Scripture, unless this verse is the exception, at no point in Scripture does Scripture ever say that I'm going to die because Adam sinned. What Scripture says is I'm going to die because I sinned. That's the whole argument of Romans chapter 1, right? Everybody is under the wrath of God because, as he says in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So everybody is under the wrath of God because everybody has sinned. Okay? So that's very clear. And Paul's going to make that very clear, that everybody has sinned, and so the judgment of God on me is a judgment on God because of my sin. God states this very explicitly through the prophet Ezekiel, actually, and I think it's in, uh, I think it's in uh, chapter 18 or whatever of Ezekiel, where he says very explicitly, he says, no person is going to die for his father's sin. He says that. Okay? Now, Adam is my father, right? So if what God says there in Ezekiel is true, no man dies for his father's sin, I'm not dying for something that some sin that Adam committed. Now, there, are, there is a whole segment of Christianity which believes, in fact, that that is why I die. That I die because I sinned in Adam. That somehow when Adam ate of the fruit, I ate of the fruit. Okay? Now, I don't believe that, but if you do believe that, you're still within the realm of Christian orthodoxy. Okay? That's not a heresy. That's a very... Uh, that is a, it's, not a, it's not a prominent uh, view, but it is a... It is a significant view of many believers uh, within the Christian church, which is fine. Okay, It's just that I don't see that. And I see that Scripture actually teaches contrary to that, that we don't actually, we are not actually punished for something Adam did. We are punished for what we did. Hence, Paul says, sin was introduced into the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because... All sin. Okay? That's what he's saying. All sin. But how is it then that all sin? There is, in Paul's mind, a very clear linkage between me and Adam's sin. And it's not just that I happen to follow his example. It's what what I've already described to you. That when Adam sinned, he introduced into his very being a sin nature. And when he began to have descendants, he passed that sin nature on to 
his descendants. And they passed their sin nature on to their descendants. So that it becomes impossible for me not to be a sinner. Because I have a sin nature. Be careful here. We believe, we believe that because I was born with a sin nature, I will inevitably sin. And because you were born with a sin nature, you will inevitably sin. We do not believe that given any specific temptation, you have to sin. There's an important distinction there, okay? In other words, generally speaking, because you were born with a sin nature, you're going to sin. But you are morally accountable and responsible to obey God at every point. And so, if, for example, you you have a sin nature, so your relationship with your spouse is always going to reflect that sin nature, okay? Some of you are more keenly aware of this right now than others. You've had a bad morning with your spouse. Okay, Uh, he or she didn't do what you expected them to do before you came to church this morning. And so there's been a little bit of a sin nature on display. Okay, but that being true, it is not true that when your spouse and I won't identify which one is which, when your spouse did not get out to the car in time, your choice to yell at them was not inevitable. It wasn't inevitable that you yell at them. That's a decision you made at a specific point. Okay. I knew I'd be touching some nerves here. Okay. So it is important we keep this distinction in mind. That it's inevitable that we be sinners and it's inevitable we will sin, but at any specific point it's not inevitable that we sin. Okay? Now, I know that somehow that, you know, logically that's, you, you got to work that one through a little bit, okay? But that's clearly the teaching of Scripture. Otherwise, how is it that anybody could be held accountable for their individual sin? Obviously, they could have chosen otherwise. But they didn't. Okay, so we are we are sinners who inevitably sin, and that's because Adam is our father. We have received from Adam this sin nature. Now you may, within the context of your own theology, find yourself going further and saying you sinned in Adam somehow that you sinned that you also were guilty of taking the apple in Adam. And I would suggest you. That's probably not what Paul is teaching. I don't think that's what Paul is teaching there. Uh, I think simply what Paul is teaching is that is that he introduced into his own being a sin nature, which then was inevitably passed down to every succeeding generation. And we are all sinners. And it is inevitable that we sin because we are sinners. And so death was spread to all men, Paul says, because all sin. Gary. When you speak of sin, are you talking about just the physical act, or are you talking about the thing like covetousness also? Talking about all sin. Yeah, all sin. All sin. Okay. Now, we're doing great here. It's 
We've got about five minutes left, and I'm halfway through verse 12. <laughs> well, actually, I'm pretty much all the way through verse 12. Okay. So Paul has established that all have sinned. But now he's got a problem, and he's got to deal with that problem in 13 and 14, okay? which is going to be even more difficult. Okay. So, so now we're moving forward into verses 13 and 14, and he wants to establish this argument that all have sinned. But he has to deal with kind of a prevalent mentality, particularly among Jews of his day, that two things that the Jews thought. One is that the law was eternal. The law, the Mosaic law was eternal. It didn't, it didn't just show up on Mount Sinai, but that it had always existed. Okay? And that that's the only way that it was possible to think about all men being sinners is if you understood that the law always existed. Okay? And uh, so, to the, to the Jew of Paul's day, two ideas are running through their mind. One is that, they, uh, that the law always existed and that where there is no law, where the, if the law were not there, there would not be any sin. So this is what Paul has to address because he's just said everybody is sinners, but Paul doesn't want us to think that the law has always existed because it hasn't. It came at Sinai. Okay? So that's what he begins to address in verses 13 and 14. So he says in verse 13, for until the law, uh, in other words, until the law came at Sinai with Moses, until the law Sin was in the world. So his argument is he's kind of in, in one half of his sentence there. He's already demolished those two false ideas. One is the idea of the eternality of the law. And the other is the idea that if the law isn't there, there is no sin. He says, now there was sin in the world before the law came. And then he throws us this curve. <laughs> but where there is no law, or uh, how does he say it here? He says, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. And we're going, huh? <laughs> Didn't you just contradict yourself, Paul? On one point, you say sin was in the world before the law. And then you say sin is not imputed where there is no law. So is Paul saying that, well, yeah, people were sinners before the law came. But God's not going to hold it against them. So everybody who was a sinner before the coming of law gets in scot-free. You're shaking your head. Why do you shake your head? Isn't that what he's saying? He's not saying that. How do you know that's not what he's saying? <laughs> we know there's something wrong with that. What's wrong with that? He's saying it wasn't imputed. We didn't know about our sin, but God knew. Okay, interesting. That's the way some commentators understand it. Some commentators understand that what he's talking about is we didn't know about our sin, but it was still there. Okay, so that's that's one way that some commentators answer that apparent dilemma. Okay, how else might we understand? Well, it's distinguishing, or at least in, in my translation, between the Mosaic law and the law lowercase l, which I would interpret to mean. Okay, great. We've got to remember Romans chapter 1. We've got to remember 
that Paul has already argued quite emphatically that we have a law written in our hearts, okay? Now, typically we would think of that as our conscience, right? The problem with the law written in our hearts is it's kind of ambiguous, isn't it? There's a little fudge factor there with the conscience, isn't there? Because it's contaminated by our sin. So we don't always get real clear signals from our conscience. Okay. And there are some things that we might not really know are wrong. For example, in the law, in the Mosaic law, it's written, you shall make no idol. Right. Okay. Very explicit. But when Paul goes to Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17, he encounters. What is the encounter there on Mars Hill that catches his attention? A statue to the unknown God. So here are these people who have molded or shaped this idol, this statue, to an unknown God. And Paul stands up there and instead of railing against them for their idolatry, he uses that idol as an opportunity to say to them, this is the God I'm talking to you about. Implicit in that is Paul was not so terribly offended by the fact that these people had built an idol because they didn't know the true and living God. And so he wanted, what he wanted to do was to introduce them to the true and living God. And when he does, then they'll no longer need idols and they'll understand why the manufacturing of idols is so wrong. Okay? So, that's an illustration of how when we're living by our conscience without the law, these people in Athens didn't have the law, when you're living with, with, strictly with your conscience and without the law of Moses, it gets a little ambiguous and you're not exactly sure what God approves and what He doesn't approve in some areas. Okay. But Paul has made it very clear that there is such a thing as this law written in our hearts. Okay. So Paul is not suggesting, it's clear, if, if he is suggesting, he can't even remember in chapter 5 what he wrote in chapter 1, okay, which is you know, not a safe assumption to make. Okay. So it's, it seems pretty clear that, that when Paul is talking about sin being imputed with the law, he's not saying that people aren't held accountable for the sins they commit without the law. What he is doing, actually, I believe, and as we go through, go further in chapter 5, and particularly when we get to chapter 7, we're going to begin to understand that what the law does is it escalates sin. And it escalates the consequences of sin. This will become very clear when we get to chapter 7. He's going to talk about how the law makes sin utterly sinful and things like that. Okay? So, what the law does is it introduces a knowledge and awareness of God to a level that makes us more accountable, more responsible for the sins that we commit. So what I'm suggesting to you is that those who have the law of God will encounter a greater judgment and a greater punishment at the hand of God than will those who did not have the law. Okay? That's clearly what Paul teaches as he teaches on the law later in Romans, and we'll see that, as I said, as we go through it. We will see that and we will understand that. So Paul is not suggesting here that everybody who sinned before the law came got through, got through scot-free. That's not what he's saying. And we know that's not what he's saying because in verse 14 he says, 
Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of Adam's offense. So, death reigned as a consequence of sin between Adam and Moses, even over those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's offense, which also happens to be the likeness of the sins of the children of Israel after the giving of the law. What was different about Adam's offense than the offense of all those people who lived between Adam and Moses? God was very specific in what he said to do or not to do, and that was specific <laughs> was uh, disobeyed. And okay, and what was the specific? Do not eat this. Do not eat of the tree. Exactly. God gave a specific, verbal, explicit command to Adam. And Adam disobeyed an explicit command. And he did not do so because he was deceived. Paul makes that very clear in Timothy. Eve was deceived. Adam was not. He very consciously, when he saw when Eve offered him that apple... He looked at it and he thought. You said apple. Uh, excuse me, fruit. Yeah, it's fruit, fruit. Okay, I'm going to keep saying apple, but you just translate it to fruit, okay? When, when, uh, when Eve offered him the fruit, or the apple, <laughs> when Eve offered him the fruit, he thought, God said, "Don't eat of this, and the day I eat of it, I will die, and I'm going to do it anyway." Hence, Paul calls it a transgression rather than just sin. There, in your New American, it calls it the offense of Adam, but the word that's translated there in New American, offense, is actually that same word transgression that we've encountered earlier. And remember, we've talked about what is transgression. Transgression is the violation of a specific command. And this is what Adam did. Now, we leave the story of Adam and Eve in the garden and we move forward through the stories of Genesis. We, went, you know, <laughs> we studied Genesis for three years. We go through all those stories in Genesis and never again do we encounter the kind of explicit command that God gave to Adam. Now, there's all kinds of judgment and death and there's all kinds of sin. You know, we have Lot, we have... Sodom and Gomorrah, we have the flood, we have the Tower of Babel, we have all those things. So God is judging sin and people are dying all the way through that time and dying because of their sin, but they are not sinned like Adam sinned. Until we get to Sinai. And when we get to Sinai, then God stands up on the mountain and He verbally speaks the commandments to the children of Israel. And they hear verbally, vocally, from God's mouth, His commandments. And from that time forward, when they coveted, they knew they were violating an explicit command of God. When they built an idol, they knew they were violating a specific command of God. When they dishonored their parents, they knew they were violating a specific command of God. Now, when we get to Romans 7, we're going to find out that when that law came, man, it just set loose. It, just, it made hell break loose. <laughs> but the reason it did is because hell was in here to start with. That's why it broke loose. Okay. It just ignited, Paul says in Romans 7, the passions that were already there. 
it's like a, like it broke the dam. Okay, and we'll we'll explore how that happened and why that happened when we study the law in Romans chapter seven. So, so what Paul is saying here is, okay, I want you to understand that even though there was no law, all men were sinners because they were somehow connected to the sin of Adam. They had original sin. So that David complains in the Psalms, he says, in sin did my mother conceive me. When I was conceived, at the moment of my conception, I became a person. At the moment of my conception, I would live forever. I became an eternal being the moment I was conceived. I got a body. I got a soul. I got both of those things. And with them, I got sin. Somehow attached to me. And Paul, you'll notice in these verses, he personifies sin. He he makes sin almost look like a person. You know, it comes in it, and it reigns. He'll talk about sin reigning over us and death reigning over us and all that sort of thing. So he personifies. That's not to say that sin is a person, but rather it's just a it's a it's a it's a it's a literary technique, if you will, that Paul uses to illustrate this overwhelming power that sin has over us because we are sons and daughters of Adam. Now, that's not a very pretty picture, okay? But the reason, the reason Paul belabors this is because this actually becomes the foundation of showing how powerful is what Christ did. But to get to that, he's got to lay this down because he's going to draw a comparison between the two. And, 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 and it gets really pretty exciting, okay? So we're only really kind of through verse 14. So we'll pick up with verse 15 next week and go on. I don't know how far we'll get. The study sheets I gave you are through verse 21. That's optimistic. So, uh, but anyway, we'll pick it up with verse 15 because it gets pretty exciting starting in verse 15. Okay?